Black Canary. I'll need a sparring partner. I'm Zatanna. Why do you care about some leggy dame in nylons? Or have I answered my own question? Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for magic. Hello and welcome to another episode of Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Daly. Alone for now, but later in this episode, I'll be joined by Nicholas Prom from Comic Reflections. And we are going to talk about the fourth chapter in Zatanna's quest to find her missing father. Let's see, since the last Zatanna episode, I still haven't heard any news about her appearances after DC Rebirth. Then again, I haven't been paying very close attention, so if you know that she's expected to turn up somewhere, give me a heads up. Uh, Some quick non-comics-related news that doesn't pertain to Zatanna yet. Uh, I read a news article, if you can even call it that, it's like a hundred words and a blurb on a gossip website, Uh, but it said that Margot Robbie, the actress who plays Harley Quinn in the upcoming Suicide Squad movie, and who does wear fishnets in the film, just saying... Uh, Robbie wants Warner Brothers to produce a spin-off film for her character, but not a Harley Quinn solo project. Instead, Robbie wants a sort of Harley Quinn team-up movie that would feature other female characters from the DC Universe. Now, they never mention Zatanna, I think the piece offered Batgirl and or the Birds of Prey as possibilities, but having just read issue 3 of Harley's Little Black Book, which guest stars Zatanna... I think that would be an interesting place to introduce her in the movie universe. So, just throwing that out there. Anyway, that's all I got for introductory stuff. Clearly not a lot. Uh, A really quick reminder of where we are in Zatanna's saga. In the 1940s, a stage magician named Zatara fought the forces of darkness with legit magic spells. Now, in the 1960s, Zatara's daughter, Zatanna, is searching for her father who has vanished from the face of the Earth. Quite literally, Hawkman, Hawkgirl, and the Atom have helped Zatanna only to learn that her father has been banished to some unknown dimension. That is what we know when Part 4 picks up, which sees Zatanna teaming up with Green Lantern. And we are going to tackle that story right after this promotional break, so stick around. Hi, I'm Nicholas Prom, the host of Comic Reflections, a podcast devoted to Silver and Bronze Age comics. Join me, and my spunky sidekicks, Jeff Barnhart, the crusty curmudgeon from Dogpatch USA, and Spencer Valadez, podcasting's very own Apache Chief, as we discuss the grooviest comic books of yesteryear. You'll find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at comicreflections.wordpress.com. What are you waiting for? Tune in, turn on, and kick ass! Green Lantern issue 42 has a cover date of January 1966, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, it went on sale on November 25, 1965. The issue was written by Gardner Fox, penciled by Gil Kane, inked by Sid Green, and edited by Julius Schwartz. 
The cover was illustrated by Gil Kane with Murphy Anderson. Oh, and the comic cost 12 cents. Damn. This story was reprinted in Green Lantern Archives, Volume 6, Green Lantern Omnibus, Volume 2, and Showcase Presents Green Lantern, Volume 3. But of course, I'm reading it from the JLA Zatanna Search Trade paperback. Both the cover to the issue and the opening title page show Green Lantern and Zatanna dwarfed by the villain of the piece, the dreaded Warlock of Yeast. The Warlock has a classical devil look about him, red skin, goatee, and a hood that suggested horns. In both images, Zatanna is down on her knees looking either tired or injured. The story opens with a prologue set in ancient Brittany, where a Roman centurion stumbles upon the ruins of the legendary city of Yeast. Before the centurion is killed, a blue flame swallows him up and transports him to a far-off dimension. Hundreds of years later, the same fate befalls a medieval knight, also engulfed in blue flames of yeast, and transported elsewhere. We learn that this sort of thing has happened numerous times over the centuries. Various warriors and or peasants and merchants happen upon the ruins of yeast, and the blue flame spirits them away. In the present, Zatanna comes to these same ruins looking for entry into another realm. She casts a spell using her stylized backwards talk, but as soon as she summons the mystical flame, she realizes something about her spell has gone wrong. Across the world in Coast City, Hal Jordan is about to embark on a totally non-superhero-related fishing trip with his Eskimo mechanic Tom Kalmaku, who, in the less racially sensitive 1960s, was called Pie Face. Anyway... Suddenly, Hal's boss and love interest, Carol Ferris, barges in telling him that a pirate is robbing the Coast City Bank, and she wants a ride into town to, you know, watch it, I guess. Tom Kalmaku covers for Hal and takes Carol away so Hal can change into Green Lantern and investigate. But when Hal charges his ring and speaks the oath, his words come out like, Nisethgerb yad, nisethkalb thigin, onliv laz, epoxy yim thigis. Tell Isot al Pisro Siliv Thigim Irawib Yim Riwap Nirgsnretnel Thigil. Green Lantern has no idea why his oath came out sounding like that, but he's not going to waste time overthinking it. He's got a pirate to fight. And fight he does for the next three pages, trading his green energy projections against the vaguely magic attacks of Patch Eyed Pete. But the most startling aspect of their fight is that somehow, inexplicably, Green Lantern's power is able to defend against the pirate's golden cutlass, where previously the Green Lantern was helpless against anything yellowish, and that includes gold, as that color is the ring's weakness. Green Lantern follows the pirate across the ocean to Brittany and the ruins of Yeast. As they're fighting, the mystical blue flame swallows them up. As Hal is being hurled through a tunnel to a far-off dimension, Zatanna calls out to him and takes his hand, promising to guide him through the adventure and explain what's going on. Zatanna tells Green Lantern how she's been searching for her father with the help of the Atom and the Hawks. She tells him that the Blue Flames transport people to the mystical land of Yeast, where time is different and the transported people never age. But the place is ruled by an evil sorcerer named the Warlock of Yeast. The Warlock wanted to leave this land and know more about our world, but he lacked the power to cross the barrier. Somehow, though, he was able to send the Patch-Eyed Pirate to our world and lure Green Lantern here. Not sure. 
by harnessing the power of Green Lantern's ring, the Warlock would finally be able to leave Yis. To protect Hal, Zatanna transferred her own magic powers to him when he spoke his oath backwards, which is how Green Lantern was able to resist the Golden Cutlass. All of this, Zatanna explains, just as she and Hal arrive in the fantasy world. As soon as they arrive, the Warlock casts a spell that brings Hal's ring to him. It flies right off Green Lantern's finger. Zatanna tries to get it back by casting her magic words backwards. When that fails, she tries a slightly different trick. She speaks the words of the spell properly, only inverting the order of the sentence. Finger lanterns green to back fly, ring power. Not only does this new spell work, sending the power ring back to Hal's finger, it was probably a lot easier to write and letter in the word balloon. So the warlock retaliates by sending an army composed of displaced soldiers and barbarians from all throughout human history against our heroes. Green Lantern valiantly stands in front of Zatanna to defend her with the power of his energy ring, but the ring doesn't work for some reason. So Zatanna has to fight the warriors by herself? Can you imagine something so crazy? A woman in a superhero comic defending herself with her own powers? <laughs> Those wacky 60s. Zatanna uses magic to make the warriors turn on each other instead of her and Hal. The warlock then dispatches some demons and monsters to reinforce his troops. Zatanna's magic fails to halt the demons, but Hal finally gets the Green Lantern Ring working by wearing it on his left hand, recognizing that powers work a little bit differently here on this world. Together, the two heroes use their distinctive powers to beat the monsters and fight their way to the warlock's castle. And along the way, we get some real nice shots of Zatanna's legs and backside. Mmm, Gilkane made her look good. Green Lantern and Zatanna confront the evil sorcerer, demanding to know what became of Zatara. The warlock refuses to tell them, unless Green Lantern surrenders his power ring. Zatanna pleads with Hal not to forfeit his power just for her, but Hal says, I must, Zatanna. This is why you came here, to find your father. The warlock makes Hal promise not to renege on their agreement and take the ring back. Hal says, I will do nothing, I so swear and he hands his ring over to the warlock. Basking in his victory, the warlock tells them he used to be friends with the druid that Zatanna and the Atom fought in the previous chapter, and that's why the druid sent Zatara to the Land of Yis. The warlock had spent countless centuries channeling all of his power and the magic of the land into a single orb that would allow him to teleport to Earth. Zatara, however, stole the orb and used it to leave Yis, stranding the warlock, who would need another thousand years before he'd have enough power to escape. So you can imagine the warlock held quite a powerful grudge against Zatara and his family. But, with the power of Green Lantern's ring, he now has the ability to leave, or he would if he wasn't frozen stiff. Hal honored his pledge not to do anything to sabotage his ring, but Zatanna secretly cast a spell that when the warlock tried to use the ring, it put him in a state of suspended animation, seemingly forever. In the aftermath, Green Lantern and Zatanna offer to bring the displaced warriors and peasants back to Earth, but they choose to stay in the fantastical land of Yis, which is just as well, because half of them would have come to Earth and immediately gotten addicted to World of Warcraft anyway. The two heroes travel back to Earth. Zatanna tells Hal that she feels better about her chances of finding her father, and he tells her that if she ever needs help, he's there for her. Thus ends Green Lantern 42 and the fourth chapter of Zatanna's Search. We're going to take another quick promo break and be back in a minute. <laughs> 
Xenozoic Xenophiles. A fan podcast devoted to the comic series Xenozoic Tales. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren. We hope you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in this excellent comic series from creator, writer, and artist Mark Schultz. Xenozoic Xenophiles is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And find us at xenozoicxenophiles.com. We're back, and instead of sharing my thoughts on this chapter of Zatanna Search by myself, I brought in a special guest host. Making his way here from Comic Reflections Podcast, please welcome Nicholas Prom. How are you, buddy? Oh, I'm doing great, Ryan. Thanks uh, for having me. Oh, thank you for agreeing to be on the show. I'm glad to have you. Uh, before we talk about this story, why don't you tell us how and when you first discovered Zatanna? I think it was around... 1990 or 91 I had I had an older cousin and this is when the you know the comics boom was starting to happen 92 probably mm-hmm. and uh, I had a cousin for Christmas I think he gave me uh, he got me a bunch of comics I, probably from just the the cheap bins but a mostly complete run of um, the first volume of who's who and a part of uh, update 87 and so that was really my introduction to the the wider DC universe I had mostly just read Marvels mm-hmm. at that time and uh, the gray morrow illustrated uh, Zatanna entry really stuck with me I think the last time it was on one of your shows we got talking a little bit about Zatanna it was a pre-show or something but we talked about Zatanna's different costumes and you talked about the satellite era costume being like eh meh and uh I remember I, I got it mixed up because I was th- thinking of the George Perez designed one with the barrette and the storm cape and the tall boots. Yeah, yeah. I love that one actually a lot. Um, I had forgotten there was that interim one like that you called the Vampire Queen. <laughs> yeah. um, that is just kind of okay, but it's it's very generic. It doesn't really sell her personality at all. Yeah, I, well, that was going to be yeah, one of my but, next uh, questions was which costume uh, you prefer. I love the classic fishnets one, the magician's outfit, and I have a little anecdote about that. But uh, I know I really do like, uh, I guess the her her nineteen eighties costume a lot. Mm-hmm. And but as far as reading comics with her was probably first time I saw her was probably Crisis or or maybe seeing her in Batman the Animated Series uh, might have been the first time I saw her in anything outside of that Who's Who. Yeah, that was my first exposure to her. Was that cartoon? Yeah, it's a great episode. It's loads of fun. Yeah. For my 30th birthday, my folks threw me a big party, and it was a costume party. And I cosplay as Captain Marvel, and a family friend of ours the came... The Carol Danvers version, or the Monica Rambeau version? <clears throat> the uh, Billy Batson version. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> no love for, for Marvel of the Cree, I guess. I guess not. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, a family friend of mine, and she's a real looker, came as Zatanna in the classic fishnets and tails costume and it was a great look uh, she really pulled it off so nice that that was just a cool uh personal experience with with that outfit so i i definitely have a soft spot for it very cool so when do you think was the first time you read this issue green lane turn 42 oh i a year ago <laughs> Uh, because we covered it on episode 296 of my show. Um, I think it was Spencer's first Zatanna story. Okay, cool. My co-host. Then let's uh, let's talk about it a little bit. Um, the first thing I noticed was the cover and the splash page both show Zatanna looking 
kind of defeated, kind of down, and Green Lantern coming to her rescue, which I understand it's Green Lantern's book. You want to sell that he is the hero, but this is the first time we're getting her full body shot on the cover. And up to this point, this is her fourth, well, really her third appearance, but... right. But we still, yeah, we still haven't gotten a good heroic-looking shot of her on a cover yet. Right, and you won't get that until um, uh, what is it? Justice League of America number I can't remember, but Z as in Zatanna and Zero Hour. Right, right. The the culmination, yeah. uh, Which is a great story. But yeah, no. As a guest appearance, she's played almost like a victim. I mean, you're supposed to be sympathetic, but having a guest star, they should have some significance or or appear powerful, or why have them? Right. There. I mean, I I certainly like elements of the story. I mean, we still kind of rely on you know it it to be Hal's journey and Hal is kind of carrying the story. But I did like. I mean, Gardner Fox made her a lot more proactive in this story than he did in the Adam chapter, which was a couple of months before this. Right. Um, I, like right in the middle when they first travel into this bizarre world of yeast, Hal can't use his ring at first, and she's the one who gave, who saves the ring from flying away. She gives it back to him, and then when he can't figure out a way for it to work, she's the one who holds off like the invaders, the warriors, and the barbarians. She holds them off for a couple of pages. Right. Um, before, before he kind of – so I did like that with each successive appearance – Fox is building her up. It's it's a little bit more slowly than I would like, but he is giving her more agency. He is making her a more competent hero. Uh, so I like seeing that. that yeah, I do like that her her upward arc that she's given, and I think it's uh, I like that Fox showed so much forethought in that, and it's just us building uh, towards uh, the climax in in JLA. It's funny, I, I recently covered the Elongated Man story, which is the next part, just a couple weeks ago on my show. I've covered the last three parts of the of Zatanna's search way out of order, because we never intended it to do, oh, we're going to do the, the Zatanna arc. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just happened to do those issues at, at that time. So, But yeah, I, I, I really like how it, she's more powerful and, and more dynamic with each successive story. They sort of weren't written and weren't presented as a story arc at the time, so I think the fact that you're not covering them that way is almost almost more like what they were originally conceived to be, or how a reader or listener would have experienced them back in the 60s. Well, right, and you have to remember in the, in the Silver Age, there's no such thing as comic shops where you can go and be guaranteed to get every issue of a series you're following. Mm-hmm. It's it's hunting up things on the spinner rack, and hopefully your 7-Eleven has the next issue of the of Justice League or Hawkman or whatever you're following. You may have to travel all around town to, to keep up with all this, the series that you're wanting to, and you might not succeed. <laughs> right. Uh, a few other notes on the story itself. Pie face. Yeah, it's so weird. He's an adult, but he's so uh, drawn and portrayed like a child. I can't remember if he's had his marriage to Turga yet at this point, but yeah. Um, Is it the name? Is that what's... Yeah, the the casual racism of the time, which is... Fine, I guess. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. Um, I I mean, he is actually used very effectively. It's cool that, you know, Carol Ferris comes in, she needs Hal Jordan to do something, but he also needs to be Green Lantern across town. And who, yeah, actually, like, you're right, he looks so childish in this. He almost, he looks like Short Round from Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. That's exactly what he looks like. (laughs) So, Um, but he comes in and he kind of feeds her an excuse that, you know, Hal can't take you, let me take you. And then he, you know, he gives... 
he gives Hal the time to change into his Green Lantern costume. So it's yeah. a he's he's looking out. He's got Hal's back. That's yeah. a good that's and, a good wingman. Pie has been consistently, you know, Spencer and I have covered most of the Silver Age Green Lantern run. We're we're picking up back up on that again. And and Pie has consistently been portrayed as integral and very helpful to Hal. Mm-hmm. He's a, a super fan of his best friend, <laughs> which is a little weird. But Pie Face has a key role, and not and it's not as comic relief. And, you know, uh, fast forward um, a couple decades, you know, uh, post-millennium, he was part of the New Guardians. He got to fight Snowflame <laughs> and the Hemogoblin. So that's kind of cool, right? Sure. <laughs> silence. Yeah, I, no, that's just a terrible series. But, but, it, but, you know, they did make him kind of a hero. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I, I like that when Hal, you know, puts his ring, de- his ring defense up desperately against the pirate's yellow sword oh, and it works. Yeah. He just assumes that somebody is helping him with magic because his ring worked against yellow for the first time. It's like, really? That's an odd <laughs> conclusion to jump to. It is a big leap, but this is Gardner Fox we're talking about. True. And, and it- these kinds of leaps of strange, you know, logic happen all the time in his Justice League stories and these Green Lantern stories. As we've gone through the Green Lantern run, it's like, oh, a breath of fresh air when John Broom writes one, and it's not Gardner Fox uh, every issue. <laughs> Did you, had you ever heard of, like, the legend of this this town of Yeast, or the, the legend about it? No. Okay, like, I, so I actually, I looked it up a while ago. Because the warlock character, the the villain in this, comes back later on in Justice League of America issue 161. That's the story where Zatanna eventually joins the League. So this villain gets a return appearance. Uh, so I, I kind of like looked it up because they oh, keep... and he shows up in uh, either the 90s or the 2000s in an issue of JSA. Yeah. So I mean, he there was I had no idea. To... I thought he was just a one-off villain. So. Right. And yeah, it was a a sort of mythological land. It was a city in northern France. And there's this whole legend about how it came to be flooded. It's sort of like Atlantis, but it's a lot more like, you know, Christian stories of Sodom and Gomorrah, how it was built by this king. And the king's daughter just kind of had these wild orgy parties there. And it was very decadent and unholy. And, Sounds like a good time. Right, exactly. Um, but <laughs> sort of the parable of how it came to destruction was a, a lover, possibly the devil himself in disguise, convinced the daughter to take her father's key and open up the city gates. And the thing about was the city was built under sea level because she liked the sea and she liked to see the waves up against the walls. So she opens the door, the tide comes in and destroys the whole city, and her father leaves his daughter to drown as her punishment for, you know, her sins, and he converts to Christianity. And there's the there, there's the story and, and why, well, you know, it's wrong to have orgy parties, according to... The story sounded pretty good and then ended pretty lame, so... Yeah. <laughs> as, as they so often do, but... Yeah. So interesting, that Gardner Fox must have been reading that story, and they're like, okay, yeah, I'm gonna take that, I'm gonna take the kernel of that story and make this into a mystical fairyland where all of these ancient barbarians get transported. Yeah. Well, he was a bit of a literary renaissance man. He wasn't just a comics writer. He wrote a lot of science fiction mm-hmm. and had a certain sorcery character that he had a whole series he wrote about. So, I mean, I, he, I'm sure he delved a lot into, uh, you know, these uh, mythological stories. And it's, it's interesting to pull up something that it could have been he could straight from his own imagination because I'd never heard of it. 
when we get to the end of the story and they have stopped the warlock and, and Hal and Zatanna, they offer to bring all of these barbarians and soldiers back with them to the real world. They're like, no, it's been thousands of years. Everybody we know and love is dead. We'll stay here. Where there's no chicks. And that was my first thought. And I was like, okay, am I being too heterocentric in my assumptions? But aren't they missing women? And maybe, I mean, I don't know what kind of life these guys have now, but... I mean, like, save for a couple of Spartan warriors, these guys have been probably, you know, really hankering for some uh, female company. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, let me flip... Oh, wait a minute. Okay. There might have been women. We don't see them. On page three in the first panel, it does oh. say warriors and maid servants. Oh. High women and knaves. And oh, it does look like you're right. So there might have been some right. random women who get brought to this land, but we never see them once they're there, so... Right. Okay. So okay. When, okay. Okay. So that brings up a different question: How come the offer wasn't made to any of the women who might be in this land? They might want to get the hell out of there if right. there have been like three of them for every one hundred men who are in this yep. land. There is that. Um, <sighs> there are a lot of unanswered questions. <laughs> I find I find this kind of stuff all the time in Silver Age stories, mm-hmm. which. Is part of the fun. Yeah. It's the, the wacky, weird stuff. Wait, wait, well, what about this? Is always a lot of fun to talk about on podcasts. What did you think of the villain himself, this warlock guy? Like we said, he oh. comes back a couple of times. I liked him a lot. I only know him from this one story, but I he looks cool. You know, wizards are kind of a dime a dozen, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I like him. I mean, he's not any worse than Felix Faust, who I like, but really have no reason to back up my fandom of that character because he's kind of a pushover as far as sorcerers go. If you've ever read that initial story with Felix Faust, I mean, the main story is really not about him. It's about Abnegazar, Wrath, and Ghast and trying to stop them. It's really him using the Justice League to get these objects of power. He's not that formidable. So I I don't know. Yeah, I don't don't think... The evil wizards have ever really been as impressive in DC's stable. Um, But they have a million of them. Yeah. It's an invasion, an alien invasion of generic aliens every week or an evil wizard. That's (laughs) half the Justice League stories. (laughs) His design, it's, I mean, it's a little bit different. It's memorable. The red skin kind of sets him apart. I didn't even realize it until now, but his costume, like the color scheme with the dark bluish kind of violet and the white. Yeah. Is sort of reminiscent of the costumes Zatanna will eventually have when George Perez redesigned her look. It's yeah, I, it's a similar outfit. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Um, I wonder if that informed his thoughts. But yeah, the color scheme is very similar. You're right. I would like to see... This guy could have been, all, when all is said and done, he might be, for all intents and purposes, Zatanna's real arch nemesis. He has got a reason to hate Zatanna and Zatara. He created this mystical, like, crystal ball that was going to help him get out of this land and go back to Earth to conquer it. Zatara yeah. steals the ball and makes off with it, and he says it would take him another thousand years to replicate that magic and build another one. That's a thousand years of hating Zatara, and here he finds his daughter. Like, yeah, yeah this is the perfect, like, setup for this for this arch-rivalry. Like, if, he, yeah. if they could have brought him back more often... He could have constantly been Zatanna's nemesis. And Zatanna had her own book in the 2000s, didn't she? Was that the late 90s? Uh, no, it was the 2000s. Yeah, it was right before Flashpoint. And he doesn't show up in that series. I don't think so. 
that's kind of a, a waste, yeah. I would think, of a, of a good idea. Or, or maybe he's too formidable. Um, or maybe too similar to Wotan or, sure. uh, or Felix Faust or one of those guys. Yeah, I think he does kind of get lost in the shuffle. And I think the in the solo series in the 2000s, I think Dini was keeping it, this is going to sound weird, but a little bit more street-level magic, a little bit more Vertigo-ish. Right. I, see, I haven't read that series, so... I've read some uh, of it, and it's kind of more of the Constantine level, as opposed to like the big sword and sorcery type of magic that this warlock seems to live in. Yeah, and I could see. I mean, he looks. He almost looks like he's wearing a cap and bells. I mean, and mm-hmm. it's not quite uh, that with his headdress, but it's it's getting there. And I think if you're trying to be a little edgy and vertigo-like, this just is maybe too much Silver Age wackiness. Right. Oh, I remember that story, the Swamp Thing story, where Zatanna and her father and Constantine and um, Doctor Occult and all those guys are doing that big seance. Yep. To that was another key Zatanna story for me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that was a good one. That was that was when we found out uh, that that she and Zata, that she and Constantine probably had a previous relationship that her father did not approve of. Oh, he didn't approve of the <laughs> friendship at that point. Um, which I kind of liked that she was a little that to learn she's a bit of a good time girl mm-hmm. um, because they're the best, and to know that she would go for kind of a bad guy or bad boy. I mean, I'm not a big Constantine fan, but I like him in the context of Swamp Thing. Yeah, me too. I like him better as a guest star. Yeah, I somebody lent me some issues of Hellblazer recently, and it was like, and it was written by Bran Azzarello, so that was another strike against it. And I was just super bored. Yeah. yeah. Oh, anyway. The trick at the end when Hal agrees to give up his ring to find right. her father, which first of all is an incredible sacrifice because they're not like he's at first he's not making any sort of deal with Zatanna that they're going to reverse this. He just says he'll give up the ring to bring her father back. That was pretty cool. Typical Silver Age trope. I mean, whether it's a Julius Schwartz edited book mm-hmm. or a a a uh, God the ed- more Weisinger right. uh, type of book. I mean, like these kinds of tricks at the end are constant at DC. Yeah. Um, but but Hal's uh, intended sacrifice just makes him incredibly noble. And I like that. Yeah, me too. And the one point that I kind of, I was like, okay, yeah, they kind of subliminally, yeah, he says, I won't, you know, do anything to get my right. back. I won't sabotage it. Wink, wink, Zatanna, nudge. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And she, of course, casts the spell that brings it back to betray the warlock. But while I'm reading this, I'm like, Aren't there conditions on the ring? Like, not everybody can use it. Like, that was like, right. he should have been um, able to hand the ring to the warlock. And it's like, yeah, it's not going to work on you because you're evil. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one, the warlock doesn't know all, everything about the ring, so there's that. But also, I like how Hal is prepared to give up the ring in case Zatanna's not picking up what he's putting down. Mm-hmm. And he's do- willing to do that for someone he's just met. Yeah. They've shared this adventure together, but but yeah, he's known her for hours. Yeah, it's one of the bigger things that he does, and it's a it's a really strong character moment for him. Yeah, and but also her picking up on that makes her seem very clever and very perceptive. Mm-hmm. So it really works on a lot of levels. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's a good it's a good moment for both of them. I like it. So. 
And yeah, I mean, like I said, it's the cover, of course, sells that, that Green Lantern is the hero and he's going to be saving her, rescuing her. But within the context of the story, they both acquit themselves well. Like I said, like for a good chunk of the story, his ring... She's pulling his butt out of the fire, exactly. really. His ring isn't working and she's keeping a bunch of angry like warriors at bay from killing them. Right. And, and the, she's the one who figures out they have to reverse the way they normally do things. Uh-huh, yeah, she reverses the way she speaks, um, even differently than how she normally reverses her, her spells. So. Right. Uh, um, so, yeah, it's really great. I, I enjoy all, all these things about it. Yeah. What did you think of the art? This is the same art team that did the last chapter about the Atom. It's uh, Gil Kane and Sid Green on inks. Uh, what did you think of the art in this? Um, I'm a big Gil Kane fan, and I'm a big fan of uh, Sid Green inking him. So I'm pretty happy with it. Uh, Murphy Anderson is better uh, as an inker. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I should say Sid Green does a thing that has been kind of leveled at Joe Giella that sometimes it, he kind of rounds it off and makes it look almost like a coloring book. Um, but like if you look at the old uh, the Silver Age Justice League stories, once Sid Green starts inking uh, Mike Sikowski – it really helps the book look a lot better. So I'm a, I'm a Sid Green fan. Yeah. I'm into it. That's one thing that I, I rarely, I, I just, I hardly pay attention to the inkers as much as I should, unless it's somebody that I, I'm really familiar with, like a Murphy Anderson that I, I would pay more attention to. But I do, I like, you can tell, you know, Gil Kane inking himself later on in his career as opposed to this. Um, yeah, his, his 70s Marvel work looks a lot different, uh, like his Conan stuff. Um Oh, if you ever get a chance, and and they would pair infrequently, but uh, they have a work a good working relationship. There's there's enough uh, stuff out there to really appreciate. Is when when Wally Wood inks Gil Kane, it is some of the most gorgeous stuff you'll ever see. Wood's pencils were phenomenal, but as an inker, yeah. he's maybe second to none. Yeah. I enjoyed the story. It was really cool. It was fun. I I would go to I would yeah, I I don't think it's any stretch to say that this is the best chapter yet in Zatanna's search. Um yeah, I would she, agree. She's the I, most proactive, it's the most Zatanna focused, and I'm also a huge Green Lantern fan, so that helps. And part of it is the art in the story and part of it is just the two characters. Like I like the look of these two characters together. I don't. They don't have to hook up. They don't have to be a romantic couple. But just visually, the aesthetic. I like these two playing off of each other. Zatanna in this costume, Green Lantern in this classic look. There's a nice balance of different power sets, different color schemes. It's pretty cool. I enjoy it. And throughout, in in each of the stories in Zatanna's search, you know when you see her with these guys who are all in in the JLA or mostly, or all in or would be in the JLA. And it's like she fits perfectly with this with this group of characters. And it's really a shame she didn't get brought into the fold on the team sooner. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, she should almost following Zatanna's search, she should have been inducted into the league. That would have been perfect. Right, I agree. I think it would have been great to end that story with her being a member of the team. And then she could have, oh, well... <laughs> The one thing about it is if she had been a team at that point when they eventually wrote Wonder Woman off, then Black Canary probably doesn't join the team in issue 75. Right. So. You win some, you lose some. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I personally, I, I, I do prefer Zatanna to Black Canary, who I, who I like, but I'm not a, a huge fan of. Right, right. Okay, well, 
that displeases me, so I'm going to end the call. No, I'm kidding. Aww. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I didn't say I hated her. I'm just saying she's not one of my favorites. I, I do like uh, the uh, the Golden Age uh, Black Canary stories that Carmine Infantino did. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. Those are good. Great stuff. Any other final thoughts on this story? No, I think we pretty much covered it. Um, it's a good time, It's and it's worth a reread because these Silver Age stories are so complicated. <laughs> they beg to be read again and again because you'll, you'll miss things. And I think, I don't know if it was intentional, but it was a genius thing that DC um, did throughout the 50s and 60s um, to have these complex stories that not only while, while you'll reread them while you're waiting for the next issue to come out and then you can't wait for the next one and do it again. I think it's also kind of like reflective in, geez, like 90% of comics podcasts that are, are like DC centric. <laughs> there are not too many Marvel ones, you know? Yeah. Yeah, these stories certainly, there's so many weird twists and turns. There's so many crazy plot add-ins that overcomplicate things at times. It's They do reward repeat reading. Um, yeah. Just to kind of catch up on things that you missed the first time. All right. Well, Nicholas, thank you very much. Uh, I think that's going to be it for this episode. Thanks for joining me. Where else can people find you online if they want to hear more from you? Well, Comic Reflections is available on iTunes and Stitcher, and uh, we are available at comicreflections.wordpress.com. We are on Twitter, at Comic Reflection, and we ha- we're on Facebook, and we also have a Facebook group specific to the podcast called the Comic Reflections Podcast Discussion Group. Awesome. Very cool. Well, thank you very much for being on this episode of Power of Fishnets. And I might have you on in the future someday when I'm covering another story. Thank you very much for having me, Ryan. All right. Take care. Now the listener feedback for Episode 5, Zatanna Search, Parts 2 and 3. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said, Thanks for covering these. I don't have the trade, so I am learning about this stuff fresh here. That's the whole idea, buddy. Happy to pass these stories along. Ange continues, Gil Kane is more of a miss than a hit for me. His art is fine here, dynamic, but I don't include him in the Kirby, Ditko, Swan, Kubert pantheon level. I don't think Gil Kane is at Kirby or Ditko's level. I do like his style more than Kurt Swan's, though. Most of the time. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast here on the Fire and Water Network took up the argument, saying, I love Gil Kane, especially in the Silver and Early Bronze Age, when he, or his inkers, reined his sketchiness in a bit more. I think he's one of comics' most unique talents and brought a dynamism to comics rivaled only by Kirby. Chris also agreed that Gil Kane drew a sexy Zatanna. Yeah, and she looked even better in the Green Lantern issue we just talked about. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said he prefers an unleashed Gil Kane without inkers like Sid Green holding him back. Martin prefers him in the late Bronze Age comics. That was wild stuff, he says. And Martin continues, Great point about Z looking younger under Kane. She certainly looked a tad matronly under Murphy Anderson, but here she's a right nice bit of stuff. A right nice bit of stuff. That has got to be the finest compliment for a woman ever. Clinton Robison from the Coffee and Comics blog said, I read the Zatanna Search trade, but I guess I skipped the Batman story after the first couple of pages because I have completely blanked it from my memory. 
Oh well, as you said, it's not really related except to include Batman later on. And finally, Paul Hicks, a.k.a. Flanger from Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast, said, Another great episode. I'm always interested in hearing about classic stories that occur before Crisis. I agree, man. Those stories set right before Final Crisis were pretty interesting. That is the crisis you're talking about, right? Uh, and over on Facebook, we got a comment from Zeb Oswalt. Oddly, my favorite Zatanna costume is the JLA 70s one, though I do like the t-shirt over her costume look she wears in her Seven Soldiers of Victory miniseries. She then goes back to her original look. I'm not a big fan of it. Still, I like it more than the Perez design, but they're both iconic looks for her. Well, thank you, Zeb, for the comment. Thanks to Chris, Ange, Martin, Clinton, and Flanger for all of your comments. And thanks to everyone who supports this show with comments or shares or retweets. That is going to be all for this episode. Next time, I'll be talking about Black Canary again, and depending on when that episode comes out, I might be finishing her current series. Then again, I might not want to cram three comics and a discussion of the band's official soundtrack into one episode. In any event, episode 9 will be about the penultimate part of Zatanna's search, where the Maid of Magic teams with the stretchable sleuth, the Elongated Man. Power Fishnets is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Power of Fishnets Facebook page. You can also find me on Twitter at BlackCanaryFan, or you can send an email to ourdailypodcast at gmail.com. And if you do tweet about this show, please use one or both of the hashtags, FWPodcast and Spells and Yells. Power Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and Eva Aisin Yad. Yeah.